0: You gonna to hit to start or do you
1: want me to you know? I have hit start. Oh, there we go. We're into it.
0: Phone's on silent, gentlemen. Question? <laughs> I'm normally the one that forgets that. Hey Hamish, Murph, Donna, mm, Murph.
1: What are your names there. We should have Murph up here too, to be
0: fair.
2: Mm, yeah, I didn't know he was going to be jumping in
0: there. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't let Murph know that we're encouraging interruptions because he'll be jumping on that opportunity. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's quite yeah, exciting. Yeah. Um, you start looking around on this topic for you know who's in the country with this kind of knowledge and expertise and that kind of stuff, and um, there's a huge amount when you actually um start looking. And yes, Murph, we will be careful. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I believe disruption is, is supposed to be the end thing, isn't
0: it? It was a few years ago, anyway. Man, if only I thought that at school, I would have been on the top of the class.
2: <laughs> mm. The top disruptor.
0: <laughs> mm. I'll just get a few yes, more minutes, guys, for people to to join.
2: Yes it's it's funny, um disruption is, is all kind of regarded as a great thing until you actually start doing
0: it. <laughs> It requires thick skin at
1: times it's been quite interesting running these webinars and you definitely notice um on the bright sunny days like we have here in canterbury you uh can get a slightly lower turnout than uh, if it was a miserably cold southerly coming through which is, beauty, which is the beauty of the recordings Right. um well we might make a start and um we'll just let a few more people roll in um as they they do. So um, welcome everybody uh, to this webinar. Thanks very much um, for attending and and taking the time out of your busy days. Um, Real excited to have you here um, for the second Trees and Agriculture webinar. Uh, now, for those of you that uh, I think hopefully most of you caught the first one um, with Darren Doherty and Greg Hark that we ran about 10 days ago, uh, if you haven't, that is available now on the, in the Quorum Sense Library under the webinar section, um, so I encourage you to check that out because that was a really exciting way to kick this uh, session off. Um, and today we're really stoked to have uh, Dr. Colin Merck here joining us um, for, for a follow-up, and we sort of asked Colin if he was available and uh, at short notice. Really appreciate it, Colin. Um, And I'm going to leave the introduction to Jono uh, and uh, just jump into a couple of quick logistics before we get into it. So for those of you, um, many of you will have used the webinar format before, um, but if you haven't, um, so this webinar is being recorded so that we can share it um, with anyone who can't be here um, or who wasn't aware of it. Um, The... Uh, Jono and myself, um, both working within the Quorum Sense Extension project, are, are co-hosting today. And um, in terms of uh, your engagement um, with us, which we really encourage and it really um, makes a big difference, um, There's the, the key thing to, to note down the bottom is the Q&A um, panel down there. So uh, if, you hit, if you hit the Q&A thing, you can type your questions in. Um, you can also upvote them. Um, if you really like someone else's question, you want to make sure that it gets prioritised. Um, particularly if we get a we get a heap and we don't have time to run through them all. Um, and Colin has said that he's happy to be interrupted by Jonah and myself. If there's questions that come from you that are particularly relevant to what he's talking about, then we might um, interrupt him and, and dive in there. Um, but if your questions are a bit more general or not, or the topic's been and gone, um, <coughs> we'll make sure we come back to them um, at the end. So Colin's going to have a sort of 40 minute-ish uh, presentation, and um, and then we'll try and make sure we've got heaps of time. Um, to get through everybody's questions. So uh, with all that in mind, and unless I've forgotten anything, um, over to you, Jonah Awesome. Thanks, Sam.
0: So Dr. Colin Merck at Manaake Whenua, Canterbury and Lincoln Universities has theoretical and practical interests in biogeography, ecological restoration and design, landscape, function, urban ecology, biophilia, um, conservation, biology, citizen science, this is quite an impressive intro, Uh, people, nature, connectivity, and future science. Uh, Colin is on numerous councils, trusts and advisory boards and steering groups. These are both for urban uh, walk groups, eco-literacy and student liaison. He has also received a Christchurch Civic Award, um, Ecology in Action NZ Award, a Golden Foot Award, um, and a Supreme Horticultural Design Award at the 2012 Ellerslie International Flower Show and most recently on NZOM. So, welcome Colin, I'm going to hand it over to you.
2: Uh, kia ora and thank you so much for the invitation. Um, uh, we'll uh, share my screen so that you can see some pictures rather than pictures of me, which will be much more enjoyable, I'm sure. Um, so, we'll get into it. <clears throat> and as um, uh, Sam and, and John have said i um, happy to uh, receive questions during the presentation to clarify any points that I'm sort of making which I'll sort of be glossing over there's quite, quite a lot of words there which you'll be able to read at your leisure later. So here we go, <clears throat> still getting a little bit used to the technology here, um, full screen. Here we go. So um, I grabbed a uh, a picture from somewhere in the Northern hemisphere at this time with snow coming down on what looks like a bit like a Douglas fir or something. Um, Not necessarily promoting that. Um, This will be sort of fairly um, focused on on the use of indigenous um, species. Um, But um, all all good things uh, count here in, in trees and agriculture. So um, here's a long list of um, components of four broad questions or topics which I will endeavor to to, um, go go through uh, in this presentation. What trees to plant, where and when, and you can see a whole list of particular situations which we'll kind of drill down into later on. Um, Importantly, noting um, uh, all of these, of course, are hosts for wildlife. So, they provide multiple um, ecosystem services, as you can see in the second point there, the various services provided by trees, um, a whole lot of topical ones like carbon, but conventional ones like shade and shelter, erosion control, etc., and also biodiversity conservation. Um, And how we plant these spatially across the landscape to get the most benefit, what is the optimum. Patch densities and arrangements in in a landscape, and how you can fit that into, drape that over your uh, particular um, environment that you um, have got with you, the constraints there and the opportunities that exist there. And importantly, um, this comes into a more sort of aesthetic, cultural, um, you know, identity aspect the visibility of that nature, of our special, unique nature. Um, And how that um, informs our um, the, our sort of um, identity for an area, sense of place, um, and the important cultural significance of that the sort of connection to pangara um, but also to our own developing and maturing um, culture on this land. Okay, so um, just starting with uh, perhaps a rather sort of um, sobering kind of comment that, um, you know we're talking about life here and biology and trees that um, we are in the middle of the sixth great extinction uh, there's a whole lot of um, planetary boundaries which are being um, broached um, as we speak with our sort of current uh, way of managing the planet so you know there's a number of things that need to change need to be improved uh, to get back on on track towards a sustainable future um, but you can see that the the, um, the broad sort of components there, green areas, are activities that are um, uh, more or less within those planetary boundaries. Yellow ones are those that are pushing the boundaries, and red ones are those that are exceeding. And you can see biodiversity, and also some of those biochemical kind of components. Um, according to some authorities, uh, are pushing outside those boundaries. Um, so. We're talking here a lot about sort of biodiversity. What is biodiversity? And I'd make a distinction between biodiversity and species richness. So just um, bringing more species into the country does not increase biodiversity, because biodiversity is a global concept. It's the total um, diversity of life on this planet. Um, and you can see it operates at a whole range of scales, from genes all the way up to biomes. Um, um, but um, for example, you know we've got about um, two and a half thousand native plant species in New Zealand, some of which are shared with other Southern Hemisphere countries, uh, but many of which are endemic or found only in this place. Uh, but even those that we share are going to have genetic um, uh, distinction from, from neighbouring countries like Australia. Um, so, um, <clears throat> but we have we have introduced into New Zealand something approaching 30,000 exotic species. Now, you could say, all right, if we lost all of our native species and and focused on our 30,000 exotic species, have we increased biodiversity? Well, no, we've increased species richness locally, but we have lost our 2,500 indigenous contributions to global biodiversity. So it's important to make that distinction. the way forward uh, is one of the ways forward is, is looking at the ecosystem services provided by nature, by trees. Um, and there are sort of four broad categories of these regulating um, services, provisioning services, cultural services, and supporting services. Uh, again, I'm not going to go into the detail. You can look at these and, and ask any questions. But I, I note the point at the bottom there that agroforestry and incorporation of trees into um, agriculture uh, are major contributors to many of these services. Okay, so what's the wider context here? You know, New Zealand Aotearoa is is a special case and a particular problematic one in terms of rescuing and protecting um, and managing our biodiversity in the future. You know, we were isolated from the rest of the world um, during major aspects of the evolution of life on this planet. Um, you know, we, we carved off from that Gondwana supercontinent of Antarctica, Australasia, you know, India, South America, and, and um, Africa, um, you know, 60 odd million years ago. And we have kind of run our own ship, you know, essentially since then. So the important aspect of that is that there were no land mammals um, uh, native to New Zealand. Um, so uh, we didn't. We've imported, of course, a whole lot of alien browsers and predators, which um, have had a major effect on our species, which were ill-prepared to um, and ill-adapted to uh, those new uh, pressures. We, of course, had um, uh, aerial mammals, uh, those that could fly here, bats and and marine mammals. Um, One of the other sort of important consequences of this is that um, our numerous introduced uh, trees and shrubs—a um, large proportion of them have dry seeds, as opposed to the native species, which predominantly um, produce berries and/or nectar. Um, and so, the the um, the dry seededness is sort of an adaptation to to rodents and you know squirrels and, and some birds which feed on uh, nuts and and um, and uh, seeds, but um, our native uh, bush birds um, are primarily uh, fruit-eaters and honey-eaters, and, and therefore are not catered for by many of those exotic species. On top of this, um, of course, many of the plants not only are just like passively sitting there, or many, of course, which we depend on for our productivity and our food and, and resources um, supporting our, our our society here, our community. Um, But a number of them, of course, are biosecurity risks. There's major invasive um, species. Um, In this case, this is a vine, um, ivy, just shown here. But of course, uh, we all know the many um, invasive trees, um, including some of the conifers as wildings. So um, looking at our landscapes, um, you'll you'll all be coming from different places in the country and have different um, representations of this um, kind of foundational diagram, um, which, um, you know, has plains and rivers and, and floodplains plains um, and uh, hills and mountains, um, coastal environments and so on. So there's a whole diversity of different environments and they all have special um, species adapted to them. Um, and so you have to know those details, um, including, you know, the soils, of course, which provide um, all of these ecosystem services, um, and they all kind of uh, have their unique characteristics in different parts of that landscape that I've just shown you. Um, and that ranges, of course, in terms of soil moisture, depending on the climate and the drainage, um, uh, on fertility, um, on depth, um, which affects soil moisture holding capacity, um, erodibility, et cetera, et cetera. You know all that stuff, I'm sure. So um, our our challenge, then, in terms of incorporating trees in in this is um, understanding the soil functions uh, and the ecosystem services and, and importantly, the underlying uh, condition of the topography and the soils and the drainage um, and how we can sort of maximise the, uh, you know, multiple values that we gain out of those landscapes. Um, And I'll come back to it a little bit further on, but there is, um, of course, an important um, uh, app that we are in the process of launching, which is called Right Plant, Right Place, Right Time, and it will, as uh, a plant selector tool for indigenous species to fit into any kind of aspect of both urban and rural environments um, throughout the country. Uh, we'll come back to that a little bit later on. But anyway, you can see um, in this diagram, you know, a lot of the different Um, uses and um, components of a landscape and where we can uh, fit trees into that. Of course, um, some of those uh, existing remnants um, exist in in much of our land, especially if you've got hilly land, Um, there's always little gullies and uh, bits, rocky outcrops and so on, which retain uh, native species, as well as, of course, the public reserves. But even but on private land, of course, there's a huge amount of natural value uh, that, that um, ideally needs to be protected. An example, another example here in the middle of a city in Christchurch, Chototahee. So um, <clears throat> But the interesting thing um, when I'm sort of talking about sort of conservation is that um, I often go back to you know, the, the English motherland, um, the classic um, English countryside, as a model for healthy cultural landscapes, and you might think, "Oh, yeah, really," um, but the, the fact is that you know the traditional sort of approach was to um, uh, was to incorporate and utilise um, the natural species in, in, in their country um, within and integrated with the production um, of of the country. And strangely, in a way, in, in New Zealand, we seem to have sort of um, kind of lost sight of that. Of course, we imported many of the species which are used in hedgerows, like gorse hedges, for example, or willows and poplars and and um, and, uh, macrocarpas and so on for hedgerows and shelter belts. Um, and we've we've base most of our production timber, of course, uses um, northern hemisphere conifers. So. Um, we we have many of these elements, but they're all dominated by exotic species, and hence we lose much of that sort of biodiversity opportunities that exist there. You can see down on the right side of the panel a long list of, of native trees, um, which I've just sort of picked out largely from uh, this rather weighty tome here, <laughs> um, a rather nice uh, but weighty book about um, the trees of New Zealand, and of course there are a number of other books along these lines have been produced over the years, which um, can uh, lead you into what all these species are. But, you know, some of them are confined to the northern part of the North Island and others are found in the rainforest, others in dry land. So, you know, this is later we need to sort of unpick where all of these individual species fit into our landscape so that they are more authentic to the natural patterns of the environment. Talking about patterns, um, a lot of words there too. Um, you know we talked about biodiversity, um, there's also um, diversity of growth form, tree shrubs, tussocks, forms, vines, perching plants, etc. Um, there's then also the sort of spatial pattern of um, diversity and, and also through time, plant succession, um, obviously uh, uh, habitats change through time as the conditions change, and more sensitive species often will come in further down the track. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole sort of human intervention on top of that, and producing um, how we kind of feed this into our design of landscapes. I note, though, um, up at the top there, where it says, um, you know, that um, I mentioned the 30,000 exotic plants, but um, within New Zealand, um, we have about, depending on your definition around about 300 native tree species. Now, I've used a pretty sort of broad and um, liberal kind of definition of tree here. as something greater than two and a half metres. In that book I just showed you by Dawson and Lucas, they suggest three and a half metres. Well, you know, it's something basically, you know, it's a a cultural construct. A tree is something that you can basically kind of walk around underneath um, if uh, if it's not got too many lower branches. So um, anyway, that's... um, it's a point of conjecture. Um, there's there's so many opportunities which we we have not used for incorporating native species even into very highly culturally determined environments like streets, um, street sides, you know, totara, um, um, even matai if you prepared to wait, even Karnaka and lancewoods or hawea, you know, these all can provide important Um, corridors, um, and importantly, they're visible and up front in our our, um, view, and that is important to cementing in place, you know, that um, cultural connection with our native flora. The elements of um, landscapes, um, again, you can see the highlighted uh, words there. Um, Landscapes are usually sort of a whole catchment or a watershed, and within them you have patches of um, taller vegetation within shorter stuff. Um, Some of these, which are specially protected, um, uh, provide sanctuaries for some of our more vulnerable wildlife. Um, There are corridors, linear patches, which connect those um, stepping stones. And in between, you've got the matrix of lower growing vegetation or built ground. And the important question then is how to sort of provide optimal spatial configuration of these elements Um, you know, while retaining, you know, obviously the productive capacity of the land, which of course, farming is all about. Um, This is another sort of view of that, showing um, how we might have, you know, large patches every five kilometres or so, and intermediate size hectare or so patches every kilometre or so, and then other small groves, um, you know, every few hundred metres. Uh, but also importantly connected by these uh, linear corridors um, which could be in um, along fence lines or hedgerows or rivers or or shelter belts. Um, But the important thing about this uh, diagram, and I should say that it's determined from empirical data on how far we know uh, native plants are effectively dispersed through the landscape by birds. In other words, We have looked at how far, um, you know, say a matai or tōtura tree seedlings have been found from a known uh, source um, plant or or patch. And we've recorded these up to two and a half kilometres from the source. Now, of course, uh, there's a long tail to that. Some will get dispersed further. But if we take that as a kind of like, you know, a minimum kind of good average, then if we double that, then that's where that five kilometre, five kilometre sort of space, spacing between those big sanctuary patches are, um, and, you know, of course, smaller stepping stones in between, which will all kind of help with that connectivity. Um, the important thing about the diagram, though, is that in between, you can see there's people living, there's houses, there's farms, um, and there's land, other land uses, um, and th- importantly, they provide um, a sort of uh, are where people uh, receive kind of like a halo effect from, uh, from those patches, which um, are sort of spreading seed and birds um, that are foraging out into the wider landscape. Um, but also importantly, they're close enough that we can all go and have a walk in the woods, you know, in the weekend or, or a couple of times a week um, to have that sort of, you know, Shinran yoku forest bathing kind of aspect. Right. Um, down at a micro scale, um, this is an urban environment. Uh, I think it was mentioned in the Ellerslie flower show that, that I had exhibited a few years ago. But it shows, you know, a micro patch. You know, it's just um, a few tens of square meters, but it can incorporate a whole lot of um, forest species. Um, there's a corridor of a stream or swale running through the system, and the matrix is the sort of, you know, finer, um, shorter vegetation, which can all be indigenous species, actually. I'm not saying that uh, pastures could be, but, um, you know, uh, even even kind of um, domestic lawns. <clears throat> so um, an example of, of one of these um, restored stepping stones through a fairly dry landscape on the Canterbury Plains, um, it's now sort of a hectare or so, um, <clears throat> and it's now sort of much more established than this, um, but there's also micro uh, trees, if you like, that are just a few millimeters high on very dry, stony um, soils there as well. Um, Looking at the corridors then, the opportunities there, a whole range of mixed uh, native species. um, Importantly, you know, pumping those fruits and and nectar into the environment that birds can then utilize. The the top right picture is of a Muhlenbeckia hedge, uh, Puhuhui. Um, and um, this is uh, particularly important. I'll come back to that in a minute. <clears throat> um, and of course, you know, we often sort of, we, we, we tend to have been sort of rather focused on, you know, very um, tidy, ordered, regimented kind of landscapes. Uh, but, you know, nature is a bit more messy than that. But it can be messy in a kind of a, uh, in a, in a ordered kind of way. And you get all this amazing sort of textural um, and form and colour uh, variation that, that I think, you know, it's, it's important to sort of get to, to identify with uh, more. Um, to me, it's very attractive. Um, uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think, you know, gradually people are coming to identify with that as well. Um, along um, another important corridors, of course, are streams and gullies. Um, and there's particular species that, um, you know, uh, go in each of those steps from, from the water to the bank, to the floodplain, to the scarp of the terrace, and then on the top of the terrace. So um, particularly in, in, in Canterbury, you know, we've got Kahikatea and Pukaka, uh down on the floodplain there. Um, it could be Pukatea up north. Um, and then uh, you've got uh, Matai, Matai. Um, Hohetti, uh, Manutu and so on on the on the foot slopes of the of the scarp and Tōtara, um, etc. Uh, Dryland uh, potocarps um, up on the um, up on the higher ground on the drier ground. <clears throat> you know the in in rainforest environments it might be rimu there for example um, on the on the foot slopes with the matai or miro even, and of course kauri uh, fits into that. Um, onto those slopes in rainforest environments, you know, up in the north. Okay, so here's just a few examples of of some shelter planting or contrasting shelter shelter planting. And again, sort of pushing that wild, functional, diverse kind of um, theme versus water control simplicity. Well, yeah, they all have their place. Um, um, So uh, yeah, you've got your willows there on the right and your uh, your mixed uh, native species there on the left. Here's another case. Um, again, you've got your macrocarpa hedge there on the top right, and then a whole range of sort of very diverse um, shelter planting or native species. And I, I go back to the one on the top left again, which is that um, uh, pahuihui, mule and um, And actually that um, replaced an original gorse hedge, um, which is so typical of the Canterbury um, rural scene. Um, and um, it's important to note the, how these uh, species provide uh, very important food resources for um, native wildlife, um, for um, native uh, butterflies, um, for lizards, um, and also for small birds. Um, sadly, <clears throat> there was a, a case just round the corner from this at the end of the road there and round the corner, in which they just recently removed such a hedge, you know, because it probably looks a bit untidy and unwieldy and it's not so typical. Um, you know, um, it's it's just so sad. You know, there's another whole habitat loss, you know. So a lot more knowledge needs to be kind of spread around as part of that halo, I think, uh, into the wider community to appreciate these values. Um, of course, we've conventionally, you know, seem to have gone for a lot of thorny things, and I understand why that is. They kind of help to control stock, and they don't eat them so much, so it's a good thing, but um, we, we need to sort of slowly um, transition away from your hawthorn, your um, barberry, um, your blackberry, your gorse, um, your uh, holly, um, and get back to uh, you know other more indigenous things, which which of course can be protected from stock. You know with fencing these days, but there are a number of native plants which once they're mature can tolerate a degree of browsing, and, and of course they can be hedged as well. Okay, so I mentioned um, the the fact that we're launching. You know in order to be able to drill down and select particular species for a particular situation, we're in the process of launching this plant selector tool for native species for anywhere in your life and landscape. Um, and you, it goes through a series of steps. So the first step is that you zoom down um, to your neck of the woods, and you can go right down to kind of like the street level. Um, and, um, and then you answer one of um, uh, a very simple question about your perception of whether your ground is very dry, very wet, or somewhere in between. So knowing those are important filters um, for the next step. So when when you've chosen that, you then get um, an opportunity to to select your particular habitat. And you can see you've got urban riparian, uh, stormwater treatment trains, open wetland lakes, bush restoration with hill elements, dune dune systems, salt marsh, tidal lagoons and coastal banks, uh, Mataranga Māori Garden, transport corridors, and importantly, rural. And so if we've selected rural, as I've done here, you then go to that zone selection. So you're zooming right down to the very sort of um, fine details. And in this particular case, um, I have uh, picked on a, um, the shrubland shrubland under um, an irrigator arm in an a, um, irrigated paddock. So, uh, you know, that's quite fine detail here. And it generates a list of species. Um, with a whole lot of with its characteristics, um, its tolerances, the ecosystem services that are provided qualitatively, um, how big it gr- the plant grows, what the optimum spacing is um, for those in a restoration project. And importantly, down the right hand side, it indicates the, the time of planting. In other words, all the ones are those that you would plant up front. Um, and then there are twos and later threes of things which might be, you know, ground covers or vines or even epiphytes, which could be incorporated further down the track. But for an irrigating system here, it's a little bit different. Okay, so um, I just wanted to kind of make clarify that, of course, it's not all about anti-exotics here. Um, (laughs) It's a matter of how we integrate and use the best of both and, um, you know, incorporate uh, combinations of Native species, and of course, some uh, native wildlife you utilize um, exotic uh, plants uh, quite happily. It's important just to make sure that they're not the invasive ones. So, um, you know, there's a whole theory about messy ecosystems and tidy frames, how you kind of like incorporate these in a in a cultural landscape so as not to offend, uh, you know, a desire for sort of water and tidiness. Um, Joan Nassau is an sort of American. Uh, person, um, landscape um, uh, ecologist who, who worked out all of that years ago um, and what these sort of might look like. So this is kind of like maybe a conventional high country landscape. Um, I mentioned before about how exotic species are being used for all these different elements, uh, but how are we sort of transitioning uh, perhaps to uh, what I would probably argue is a more mature kind of um, future, more diverse landscape that integrates, um, you know, our kind of needed uses and productivity with um, a greater component of our uh, natural nature. And um, you won't be able to kind of read all of that um, off the screen here now, but, um, you know, there's a lot of general sort of ideas about how how all of, how all one can find um, all of the different um, opportunities that exist in a conventional Um, um, productive landscape, Um, there's so many places to incorporate um, nature as well as the ecosystem services that they provide, you know, such as beetle banks uh, that provide hosts for um, um, beneficial insects, for example, that maybe predate pest species, etc., etc. Anyway, again, I'm not going to kind of deal, so I just want to kind of like, Finish off with you know the more um, cultural aspect, and um, inter- interestingly, you know these pictures are from Germany and from Britain, showing you know what I would sort of regard as you know that ideal um, um, sort of cultural integration of nature, ecology, sustainability, and um, land use um, within within our sphere, and. Um, incorporating sort of living communities, that legibility that I've mentioned, be able to read the landscape um, and sustainable customary use there. <clears throat> um, and of course, um, I've touched on you know the aesthetics and, and incorporating art into, into nature. And you know, this could can, can I think there's much greater scope for doing this, you know, right through our cultural landscapes and farmland, um, which which can often Tell a story, tell a message. I mean, you sometimes see interesting sculptures on people's letterboxes, boxes. You know, as you travel through the countryside, you know these add interest and add, add value, um, and, and add meaning. I think to to places. Um, there's there's um, incorporation of of information signs as well, and the symbolic importance of um, uh, Maori symbolism, for example. Um, and the role of different species that, that act as markers for historic events in the past, like bracken fern as an indicator of past fire, and um, you know, cabbage trees here in Canterbury were used as markers for trails, ancient trails across the landscape, and so on and so forth. So um, just, just finishing off now, um, one other thing uh, was mentioned in my intro uh, involved with is um, citizen science, um, and, you know, I just um, sort of do a little uh, advertorial here on the role of, of iNaturalist uh, platform, NZ, which um, you can join up to and use on your on a website or, or on your phone to record natural history observations. And importantly, it um, enables you to um, identify species. You don't have to know what it is doesn't have to be you know, highly significant species. It's just something that you see in the landscape or you want to contribute um, a, um, a story about what the species are in your neighborhood, and you can record them. And um, there's an artificial intelligence for identification, but then crowdsourcing comes in and, and supports that. So it's, it's a great way of learning, but at the same time, you're also contributing to the increased knowledge of where species occur, distribution maps, And for example, you know, one and a half million observations in New Zealand alone, and it's a global thing. Um, There's about um, 100 million observations worldwide on the site. Um, And just within New Zealand, 17,000 species have been recorded by about 20 to 35,000 people now. Um, And and just one particular aspect of it or application of it, um, which relates to our talk here, um, is um, a list of species that have been recorded in hedgerows, shelter belts, and fence lines in New Zealand, um, incorporating both the good and the bad, you know, some of the weedy things, uh, but also a lot of native species there as well. Um, so, um, very last uh, picture uh, goes back to the very first um, slide um, trees and agriculture. Um, did we tick some of the boxes? Well, we didn't go into a lot of detailed species information. You, we hopefully you'll be able to get that from the plant selector. And of course, there are various um, books and brochures and publications by local government. But the the, um, the right plant, right place, right time app will go into a lot more detail, be a lot more specific to site, um, and importantly, it will incorporate greater elements of biodiversity as plant succession goes on and as the initial shelter is established. So, um We've, we've sort of got a pathway to what trees to plant, where and when, um, there's that wonderful book by Dawson and Lucas that I've uh, advertised as Eagles, uh, Trees and Shrubs as well. Um, we've we've t- touched on, you know, the various services provided trees. Importantly, I've touched on how we can spatially incorporate viable um, stepping stones and corridors through our uh, cultural landscapes and the importance of that in providing visibility and legibility as we travel through along our roads and streets. Um, You know, they're not tucked away in the far distant mountains where hardly anyone ever goes, Uh, but our nature is present in the the front of our our vision. So um, that's uh, the the formal um, comments that I wanted to make. uh, happy to, uh, take any, any observations or comments or, questions.
1: questions. Thanks so much, Colin. Um, John, I'm going to jump in with a first question. If, if that's all good, cool with you, mate. Um, and, um, friends, uh, he has actually asked one that was similar to one that I'd scribbled down. Um, and so I might run with mine first and then, um, has taken his second there uh and just encourage everyone else to keep um keep those questions flowing through and John and i'll do our best to get through them um but just wondering whether there's i guess part of your presentation there colin's kind of you know blending the way that we we do things at the moment and, and kind of um into how we could do so going forward using more um obviously changing the design the way we think about things but also just almost like substituting species with things that we already do in the mule mm-hmm. hedge um was a good example and actually maybe if you stop sharing your screen there colin um stop sharing yeah um and then we can yeah. better we can, we can see your face thank you um yeah are there are they kind of native equivalents that Functions similar to some of the exotics that are really popular in the way that we use them at the moment so you gave the mulanbeckia example for a gorse hedge but i'm interested in whether there are similar ones um, and the things that come to mind are like you know space planted poplars um i think most of us are pretty familiar with swapping out willows around riparian areas for native species so i think we're probably good on that but the same with um you know conifer shelter belts um and franz's question was particularly around native species that substitute in your lawns. He was really interested in that. So right. um, you might yeah, if you throw us a few ideas, that'd be much appreciated. Yep. sure. Um, and and
2: it, it's it's important to note too that you know transition is the appropriate way to look at this, because um, there's no doubt that many of the imported species that we have in the country in which we've traditionally used for shelter plants, for example, grow far faster than any almost any native plant species and and form a much denser more you know robust um form um you know which is not surprising given that we are picking from the best most vigorous you know successful plants from the whole world's flora and then bringing them into a new zealand in a very benign environment compared to where they came from often without their natural predators you know so yes, of course, they're going to grow like crazy. uh, And that then becomes a problem. So, you know, there's opportunities to kind of mix mix things with those so that, you know, it's not a matter of just clearing out all willows, but actually underplanting them with sort of shade-tolerant native, um, you know, riparian species. Um, And similarly with, you know, exotic uh, conifer um, shelter belts. Um, So, you know, it's being... um, increasingly using uh, plants like um, olearia paniculata, the golden akiaki, um, akiaki itself, um, <clears throat> a broadleaf, chrysalinia, um, and, um, uh, and there's a whole lot of small leaf shrubs, native shrubs like the mule and beckia, that um, are very useful for hedgerow height things, um, so there's other mule other than the complexa, which I showed, which is more of a scrambling plant. Um, <clears throat> there's a whole range of small leaf caprosmas, uh, some other things like karokeas and so on, which um, can all be can all be hedged and supported in these environments. So <clears throat> um, um, and then, of course, if you want some sort of taller things, you know, there's the lace barks or hoheri, um, <clears throat> there's um uh, manutu or, or Ribbon Woods, um, there's, there's a lot of species out of that 300 tree species and tall shrubs which are available. For tall, you know, erect kinds of things, you know, we've got, of course, our lancewood, which, you know, has to be nurtured in its early stages, but eventually forms, you know, a nice columna form, as do um, some of our barks. The narrow laced bark, for example, forms a lovely con- conical sort of um, form
1: yep awesome thanks and um specifically around france's question in terms of uh, lawn species yes. is that i mean I, I assume the app's gonna probably include um a whole lot of that kind of stuff but um so yep. there's also a question about when the app's going to be available
2: sure uh, well it's sort of available now but i'm just doing a bit of sort of due diligence on it really and of course it's quite a big database to check through the whole thing um <clears throat> I'm, I'm happy to kind of share it with people on a restricted basis if they Want to get hold of me to sort tri- of to trial it out to um, test test it. Um, so there's there's a thought. Uh, but yes, lawns. Um, I guess you could call these a micro forests, You know, like a couple of millimeters tall. <laughs> there's there's a whole range of uh, species, and it depends on whether you're in a uh, you know a wetish environment, a rainforest environment, or a much drier place. But um, you know, there are native leptanellas or small daisies. Um, there are some native grasses like and bacilla uh, which is available as a seed um, crop here um, there um <clears throat> there's uh, plant native plantains um, there's uh, native lobelias um, and things like centella i mean i don't want to kind of overwhelm you with too many names here but um you know there are there are dozens of native plant species that quite happily coexist in a lawn and mown lawn environment um dichondra is another genus for example it's quite common in that in that context Mm. and yes it will be on the
0: app (laughs) awesome Colin thank you and what a fantastic opportunity for people to trial out this app as well it's awesome um so from Donna and and also added to by Vera and the plant selection tool In terms of ecosystem services does it also include livestock forage and livestock apothecary um not too much
2: because you know by and large there are not a lot of native plants that probably provide that particular service um some of you may have some particular examples of course Um, livestock loves eating a lot of our (laughs) native plants but they're not adapted to that so that they're not good at kind of quick recovery from that Um, there's um, yeah I mean there's some you know a lot of native grasses were like ice cream and and we often call it our our native trees ice cream plants because you know um, deer cattle, sheep rabbits, hares, etc., possums, just love eating them, you know, rata, and as a case in point, um, even totra is eaten by uh, possums, for example. So, um, you know, we're in a slightly different sort of difficult sort of situation there in terms of uh, providing that. In terms of apothecary, I, I can't really um, comment, of course, there are a number of native species a few native species which are poisonous to stock um, you have to be careful about Nio comes to mind korea area tutu for example um yeah so um need to be just a little bit wary of some of those things but they're not too many of them most of them are really ice cream
1: <laughs> i'll just jump and then add to that colin um, there's a, a beef and lamb hill country futures project at the moment that's looking at uh, they're trialling a few species um, up in uh, Gisborne, I think it is, in um, particular to see uh, specifically with the, to kind of investigate browse tolerance, particularly in drought times. So they're looking at, you know, are there is there a certain range of species that you could plant that get you some of those native benefits and stuff while retaining your kind of drought reserve gullies, etc. Um, with a bit of browse Um from those natives at the same time so there's a little bit of work in that space um, going on which um, you yep. can find on the hill country future stuff and i also uh, vaguely recall uh, and there's a marion johnston on the call and murph might know too because i feel like this work was done through the bhu but there was this massive piece of work that was done on indigenous species traits um and murph you might if you know what i'm talking about maybe chuck it in the chat but I feel like there was a big piece of work that went through a whole list of natives on, on, and included that kind of thing. But um, there, there, there is a small um, cluster
2: of native species that are browse tolerant. Um, and of course, um, ironically, by because of that, they were early on regarded as weeds, you know, and invasives into pasture, for example. And, and the cases are kānaka and manuka. Um, and tahinu um, or tawini as it was often called, was um, Now, um, so there's there's this very small cluster of of native species which aren't um, eaten by stock, um, and you know now we're sort of finding new and valuable uses for those. Um, I, I always like to um, raise the kind of example of um, what is conventionally been called Matagari, although that's a corruption of Matakuru, um, <clears throat> which um, of course has been widely eliminated from most dry land environments of the South Island just, I think, got into the southern part, southeastern part of the North Island. Um, you know, it's, it was New Zealand's only native thorny shrub, um, but what was unknown uh, or recognized is that it actually, like a legume, although it's not a legume, um, it fixes nitrogen into the soil, um, and also um, it was hosting a um, the the larvae of a tachinid fly that um, then became a parasite of grass grub. So, with the you know the unintended consequence here of eliminating this the shrub from the landscape often coincided with um, you know an explosion of grass grub problems. Um, you know, because it lost its natural biological control because grass grub is a native species. So, um, yep, there's there's all sorts of new things that we're sort of discovering and hopefully incorporating in a more sustainable, healthy um, ecosystem.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Colin. And I've, I've seen, I've been on a couple of high country farms recently that are doing a, a heap of work to protect and restore their metagary patches for, for lots of reasons, including those, I think. So, Uh, Which is really cool to see. Uh, I've just got there's a couple of questions here um, following up on the app uh, one from James, one from Di. So I'll just ask them both at the same time, perhaps. And um, from James, have you thought about including tolerance to strong winds and exposure in the tool? Um, And Di's asking about um, the currently blank carbon sequestration column in the chart.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that it's some of it is still a work in progress. the, um, there is um, there is a filter for the um, coastal exposure um, tolerance, um, and um, the 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 idea with the carbon sequestration sequestration thing is to kind of give a general sort of view of what the annual increment of of um, sequestration might be for. You know, a well-growing example of, of a particular species. Um, it, it may be that in the future we would be looking at, um, you know, a, a much more detailed analysis of a particular um, property boundary um, and what the carbon sequestration might be in a, in a spatial area that's been identified with a given range of species in it. Mm. But that won't be um, that, that that won't be available immediately or freely, you know, in the, in the short shorter term.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Um, on to a question from Trudy: Is Grisellinia any of the or any of those other hedging species you mentioned poison to stock?
2: No, I deliberately left out. Um, Nio (laughs) yep Uh, Grisoline Broadleaf of course is loved by stock (laughs) so I mean I I guess you know in terms of that foraging question you know if you can get the thing established you know um, and um, and and, and, uh, protected from browsing you know while it's getting established then you know it certainly can be you know, a nibbleable species by stock around the edges and will help to sort of maintain it as a, in a hedge form, really. Um, but that would obviously have to be sort of managed quite carefully. Um, but as far as, as far as I know, Grisolinia is a delightful species for, for stock, um, for mammals to, to browse on. Uh, but it would usually be very damaging to the plant if it wasn't controlled to some extent.
0: Got it, got it. And it sort of ties into another question here from Vera, which is, uh, what are your thoughts on using tagasasti as a nursing crop for uh, forest restoration or reforestation?
2: Mm. Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned earlier on, you know, that um, we live in in recombinant ecology, that is, we've got this great mixture of native and exotic species and And some of them certainly, uh, you know, are and can be used as nurseries. I mentioned, I think willow in the case of of, uh, riparian environments. But you need to sort of discriminate between the good willows and the bad willows. I mean, the bad ones are grey willow, which is a sort of a, uh, a fertile species in New Zealand now, and spreads seed everywhere and for miles and extremely invasive whereas most of our willows and poplars, of course, are single-sex clones and so aren't reproducing in that way through the landscape, although they can spread down a stream through twigs and stuff, vegetatively. Um, so um, going back to Takasasta, yes. So um, obviously, you know, that's a nitrogen-fixing plant which can help build up the soil, provide some initial shelter. There seems to be kind of mixed results from doing that. I, I think um the, I think probably what you'd be looking at doing is um, you know over time thinning it out. It seems to not necessarily um, encourage everything to grow and grow up through it and eventually displace it. But, um, <clears throat> um, and as long as you're not sort of near a you know rocky bluffs and things which've got a whole lot of native natural plants growing in them, which could be outcompeted by Tagasasti sort of spreading into, into those rocky ledges, which it can do, like gorse and broom as well. Um, so yes, in that sense, it's um, a little bit like, um, you know, the gorse model from Hinawai on Banks Peninsula, for example. But I, I would always sort of have um, a note of warning about um, um, <clears throat> not necessarily encouraging gorse and broom. If it's there, then you can use it and you can thin it and you can gradually manage it. Takasase is something, yes, you can plant in particular situations to provide that nursery and then look at gradually thinning it out as your desired species come through. Um, You know, the, the prerequisites for the kind of the gorse model to work are A, there is a nearby seed source, B, um, there is um, uh, relatively good rainfall um, so that you don't get a buildup of dense litter that prevents seedlings uh, roots getting down to the soil. Thirdly, there's no browsing of no browsing mammals, which will clean off all those um, seedling native plants. And fourthly, you keep fire out of it. And of course, they're kind of rather fire prone species. So, you know, that's quite a challenge. Yeah.
1: Hey, um, I've got a uh, kind of a more of a personal question because we're um we've, we've got through most of the ones um on the Q and A list there. Although while I'm just asking this, I would encourage if anyone um on there's got a particular example that they're chewing through at the moment, like you've got your farm and you, you're you kind of bouncing around some designs and you want to take this opportunity to um. Ask Colin directly. Um, we've got a bit of time. We've got a bit of time left, so feel free to put your hand up, and we can make you a panelist. And you can even ask that live if you like. Um, and uh, while you're thinking about that, uh, I'm interested. So, what I love about uh, the last couple of webinars we've got, like we had Darren last week, who's kind of, uh, and there are other examples around, like kind of empowering farmers to do a lot of the design work themselves with a bit of guidance and frameworks, and that. And you know. Um, the apps that you've been involved in um, with the new one coming out in particular really kind of empowering farmers to be able to do a lot of the, the decisions themselves but most of us probably want a bit of a um, you know a sounding board somewhere um, and a bit of expert advice uh, perhaps just to make sure that we're on the right track and we haven't missed anything so um, interested in like the and obviously it's a very you know there's a lot of different um, ecosystems in this country lots of different Bodies, research institutes, etc. So, what are the kind of what are the go-to places that I, as a farmer would go to? Um, you know, research institutes, local bodies, other organisations. Could you point us to a few of the key ones so that we're at wherever we are, we kind of um, we know who to pick up the phone and talk to first. Yeah. Well, I'd probably sort of say you know you're talking about
2: both design and ecology, and so. Um, <clears throat> One, you know, as an ecologist, I would always sort of argue that, you know, the best landscape plans are going to be um, co-designed between the landowner um, and the and, uh, landscape architect, uh, but with um, input from an ecologist with local knowledge um, who, who've got access to a much greater understanding of the whole range of species and the particularities of the uh, micro environments. But we're hoping that the um, plant selector tool will um, be a, a great guide to all of those um, um, professionals and um, advisors. Um, so, I mean, that doesn't nail it down to any individuals, but you know, every location will have um, its own expertise in those, in those fields. Does that answer your question?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I guess to an extent. So, just to, you know, we've got um, so our local uh, local councils are, are an obvious starting place. But I guess yes. the um, outside that have we got things? So you've got uh, oh, one of the hats you wears is Manaki Fienua Landcare Research, um, mm. and then there's also things like the Landcare Trust. Um, like, are all are there people in those organisations and others that you can name around the place that we can pick up the phone if if we don't find kind of what we're looking for with our local authorities. Yeah, sure. So
2: um, yes, um as I said earlier, <clears throat> I mean most local government um agencies have, you know, uh, printed book brochures and booklets, um, websites now with um with local information. I would argue that the the app we've got, you know, drills down to a much more precise Um, representation of that, and also has a much greater palette of species and and a temporal component, which a lot of those others don't have. So, um, but yes, of course, the Crown Research Institutes, Manakiti Whanua, Niwa, perhaps, in some cases, or Forest forest Research, Sion, Um, but also the universities, of course. I mean, there are different levels of expertise in all of these Um, uh, locations or institutions um, and, you know, um, they're, they're often all sort of busy, you know, they'll they'll be looking at some sort of um, consultancy sort of uh, arrangement, I guess, um, but some will, you know, ho- hopefully the information that we provide will be, you know, sort of um, open source and free uh, as a starting point anyway. <clears throat>
0: Fantastic, Colin. Um, one here from Haley, and she's asking. She's wanting to replace a pine tree shelter, and her question is: Are there native species that will deal better with the acidic pine needles, or is she better to thin the pines out first?
2: Yeah, well, um, a lot of native trees are quite well adapted to um, acidic soils because by and large our soils are naturally quite acidic um, because of the high rainfall and um, the low base level of much of our geology <clears throat> so um there's there's quite a you know range of species suitable for that um, and um uh, but the the main main um, <clears throat> um sort of obstacle will be the competition from the, the big established trees and, and under the, the root competition in particular. So um, thinning the trees, you know, um, is, is often needed in order to be able to easily plant. Of course, native plants will establish themselves under a pine um, shelter belt, <clears throat> um, providing there are no browsing kind of creatures there, kind of nipping them out. Um, because they start off, uh, you know, with a perfect balance between roots and shoots. And so they can cope with, um, you know, perhaps a highly competitive uh, root environment uh, by that. Um, but when you plant a nursery grown tree, there's, it's already imbal- un- um, un- unbalanced in terms of you know, there's not enough roots to support the shoots. And when you put it into a highly competitive environment, it usually doesn't like that at all, unless you pour lots of water onto it, <clears throat> which is one of the uh, solutions. So um, yeah, so I, answer to ask your question, I would say, yes, um, gradually thinning is often the best option. Um, and that kind of represents that sort of transition approach that I sort of referred to before.
1: brilliant thanks very much colin um i've just been um answer one of donna's questions there uh, it wasn't matter um and that hill country futures trial i think they're all broadleafs um, from emery but i'll try to get that link uh, and we'll send it out in the follow-up uh, as well uh, i think that's uh we've got through all our questions and no one's uh, no one's put their hand up specifically to to, to tap into you in front of everybody which is uh understandable so um I think we might uh wrap up there unless you've got a final question johnny uh, one final one here from the q a is
0: um what about uh kofi <laughs> for uh toxicity for grazing
2: yep um i've uh, just been establishing some kofi on a dry grassland area in, near christchurch um, with which the sheep have been nibbling away at um, i think you Know a small amount is okay. Uh, what it got a bit of a bad rap, I think, a while back because of the seeds can be um poisonous. And you know, the one ex, I think, the one example of um a human actually dying from kofi was because they made a pipe out of the wood and smoked the pipe and got toxic fumes or something. <laughs> And of course, if you crushed up the seed and made flour out of it and bread or something, you would probably be very sick. Um, so I wouldn't recommend that at all. Um, but you know, in general, I think the toxicity is pretty, pretty low. Um, but um, I'm not a full expert on that, so on it's always mm. a bit dangerous, isn't it? Sort of making a definitive statement about something. Yeah, like that.
0: yeah. Context is key in this in this realm yeah. of risk yeah. assessment. And- yeah. But generally,
2: you, you need to keep stock off Kofi while they're establishing until they've sort of got up to tree size. Um, you know, there, there could be an issue if, if um, seeds got eaten, but of course they, they're hard-seeded, and in general they will pass through an animal uh, rather than sort of being digested. So, um, um, yeah, something just to be kind of watch out for, I guess. But very important trees for our native uh, honey-eating birds.
1: And just as I uh, see we we're going to wrap up, we had two more good questions come through, so we'll get stuck into them because they're goodies. Uh, first one from Brian: um, I've planted thornless honey locust on a steep slope. Each tree individually protected, eighteen meters apart. The hillside is grazed, um, and knowing Brian, I think it's um, with horses, and he does an amazing job of. Um, Plant grazing as horses—it's really cool to see. Uh, the trees are for shade, uh, shelter, shade, uh, sugar pod production in the autumn, and nitrogen sequestration. Uh, he'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Honey
2: locust. Now, just um, oh my gosh, um, what remind me what that is now? Um, uh, because I've, I've sort of had a mental block about. It sounds, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, um, I'm, I'm a bit caught out on that one. Can I come back to that? You've got another question as well.
1: Yes, yes, there was another one. Um, not too dissimilar, actually. Uh, from Donna, our neighbours cut down an old macrocarpa hedge, and in its place, thistles have made a very happy home. Any suggestions for what could be planted between the stumps? Uh, so whereabouts was that again? Uh,
2: it'll be in the Upper. Right. <clears throat> um, so um, you you know, of course you've got um, things like Karnaker like and, uh, and narrow-leaved lace bark and um, um, <clears throat> uh, probably things like tītōki and a um, whole range of uh, other broadleaf species, but one, one would always, I'm always sort of trying to get some of our so called noble trees, which I've sort of listed in that slide um, uh, on the presentation, um, which um, uh, include things like um, Tultara, Matai, Kahakatea, um, Miro, um, Rimu, and wetter places, uh, Kauri up, up in the north um, um Pukatia, and, and wet floodplain environments so um, picking the right species you know so we ideally we you know we want more of those uh, kinds of species um, back into uh, into the wider landscape to provide those important foraging sites for native wildlife um, yes I, I'm I'm just kind of looking back at honey locust. Yes, Clavizia, you know, it's a legume thing. So it's it's acting a little bit like a um, fast-growing kowhai, uh, I suppose. Um, and again, I'm not sure about its properties, its toxic properties um, in terms of seeds and, and so on. Um, I would need to kind of uh, investigate that. <clears throat> but um, it, it it will be... A valuable species. I presume it's in a grazing environment, otherwise it would tend to get um, overtopped by competing with tall grass and so on. Um, so there's always different things that one is, is trying to balance. Um, yes, you know, one could come up with a long list of species, so going back to the other question on what to plant amongst the felled macrocarpas, I think it was, um, yeah, I mean the whole range of not local forest species will be will be suitable or appropriate, um, but incorporating some of those uh, noble trees so that they eventually form you know a high structure um, into the system if that's the intention to actually restore a natural habitat there. Cool, and we've got one final one
0: here. Uh, from Trudy, what is the best and fastest growing shelter for paddocks on top of a farm in windy conditions?
2: Um, <clears throat> well, um, Aki Aki is 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 probably a pretty good fast growing one on a, a dry, exposed environment, you know, which um, um, has got um, droughty soils, for example. And um, the, the lace barks i've mentioned um, of course there's a whole lot of broadleaf caprosmas uh, things like chrysalinia of course are extremely slow um, um, <clears throat> and carnica is, is is suitable if it was sort of self-established but they often um don't like transplanting very well and they're sort of often a bit slow off the mark um, but you're looking for something which will provide some sort of dense thick um uh shelter at a at an early stage um as i say nio of course would is is great but not if you expecting stock to be able to have access to it um, um then there are some small eco prosmas but you know again these things you know they take time to establish you know they won't be instant gratification here um, you know um but some of the ones I've just mentioned um, immediately come to mind as sort of the faster-growing, sort of leafy leafy sort of species. And, of course, you know, there are things like cabbage trees, tikaoka um, as well, which are pretty fast-growing. Um, manatu, ribbonwood, I might have mentioned, but that doesn't form a very dense sort of uh, shelter initially. There's probably, I'm sure there's other things which I could mention, but... Um, those are the other ones. Those are the ones that immediately come to mind. I mean, they are old area um, hedges, um, but again, you know, they're not that fast growing. You know, you. Um, but they are sort of um, resistant to stock browsing.
0: Awesome, Colin. Great, um, and you know, everyone here, I'm sure, is aware that there never is a silver bullet. There never is a one answer. So, we're going to only plant a few seeds and see what takes. Um, look, let's let's wrap up there. Thank you so much Colin for your your wisdom and your knowledge. Um, thank you Sam for co-hosting this event today. Um, and thank you to all the participants for such an engaging Q&A session. Um, I think we had 22 questions answered. So that was really fantastic. And I thought it was of value to, you, uh, to those of you that did ask those questions. Um, do get in touch with us via the website. There is a contact form that you can use to um, bring any more topics you'd like us to dive into on the webinar series whether it's in the trees and agriculture series um or whether you'd like to learn about other aspects of your farming operation uh sam and i are really committed to having these webinars uh really frequently um and we're also really keen on your feedback of how they work for you as well so definitely use that in that engagement uh form on the website quorumsense.org.nz. thank you so much team
2: Thank you.